Welcome to the Fine Line Podcast. I'm Emily Gold. And I'm Liz Willette Daniels. As longtime veterans of restaurants and the wine importing and distribution business, we wanted to learn how the people we admire balance their love of food and wine with their mental and physical health. It's not always an easy journey. Mm-mm. If you are liking this podcast, please do rate, review, and subscribe. And please stay tuned after this episode for a few minutes of mindfulness with Kathy Hoya from A Balanced Glass. Enjoy! Diana Snowden Sace was born and raised in the Napa Valley. She graduated from the Viticulture and Enology program at UC Davis in 2001 and has worked in both California and French cellars with Robert Mondavi Winery, the Araujo Estates, Domaine Lefleve, and Remy, just to name a few. In 2003, Diana became the enologist at Domaine Dujac in Burgundy and consultant at Domaine de Trienne in Provence. And in 2005, she became the winemaker at Snowden Vineyards in Napa Valley. She is recognized as an authority on climate change as it relates to wine and holds a seat on Porto Protocol's Global Steering Community. Committee, excuse me. Um, hi, we're so happy to have you. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. You're looking pretty great for someone who's in the middle of harvest. Oh my gosh, thank you. I uh, thank you very much. The <laughs> <laughs> best I can do is slap some sunscreen on. Exactly. Um, so Diana, tell us about um, how you ended up where you are now. You know, we interview a lot of people about how they got into the wine business, and you are one of the few who was born into the wine business in Napa, and then you've ended up in Burgundy, and those are both such special, iconic places. So we'd love to hear about your story and how you ended up where you are now. Sure, of course. Well, I'm talking to you today to you today from St. Helena, and I'm actually in the house that my grandmother once lived in, Aww. and. Yeah. And so, yes, I, I spent afternoons here with her when I was little. And um, when she passed away, the family kept it so that I could use it among other members of the family. Nice. So, yeah, I, I was born in Napa and my grandparents bought our family property in 1955. And Napa was a completely different landscape at that point. Um, and we just sold grapes. So it was a different attachment and a different engagement in the wine business. I, you know, I would go up to the property and munch on Cabernet and climb trees and get lost in the forest, but it never felt, it just didn't feel like a, like my future necessarily. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like, um, my family didn't have a huge culture of drinking wine. Actually, we just sold the grapes. And um, so I ended up going to UC Davis because I liked the campus and it felt like the right distance from home. And when I got back, uh, back home in St. Helena after freshman year, and I was undeclared as my major, uh, my dad said, welcome home, get a job. And so here was St. Helena. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I called or I called my my, actually, my father called my best friend's father, Tim Mandavi, and I got um, a job working a summer as a sugar sampler at Robert Mandavi Winery in 97. And I loved it. And, you know, you go out to all the different vineyards that they source fruit from and you take a sample back to the lab uh, where they analyze sugar and acid and that helps inform their picking decisions because they have so many vineyards they can't go um, every day. And for, for on my side, I wasn't even 21. So I wasn't working with the juice. I wasn't doing any lab analysis. I was just driving to all these like beautiful jewels hidden around the Napa Valley in the sunshine. And I just loved it. So I went back to UC Davis and declared my major and never looked back. And the following uh, harvest, I went back again to work at Robert Mondavi Winery. And that's when Jeremy Sess, who's now my husband, was there. And that's where we met. And, um, and so 
when I finished Davis in 01, I, um, so we've just, I've just celebrated 20 years of living in France. I, I moved over and I, um, I did one harvest in, in Bordeaux. And then after that, I moved to Burgundy and I've lived there since. So I was actually working uh, in Burgundy full time um, when we had some issues with Britannomyces and my family's wines. And my dad called and said, help, we need you, come back. And um, I was supposed to get married. And I thought, oh my God, what do I do? Call off my wedding, say no to my dad. And um, and Jacques Sess, my father-in-law, he arranged a meeting with Véronique Durand, who commutes between Oregon and Burgundy. And she told me about how she pulls it off. And I started doing the same thing and um, working both both in Burgundy and, and making wines for my family in California. And I've been been doing it since. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, you know, it's hard enough to do either one of those things. And then also to have small kids and be, I mean, you don't have small kids now. They're about my kids' age, 11 and 13-ish. But um, you had small kids for a very long time going back and forth. And it's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. And essentially, the only reason that I can pull it off is, for, on the one hand, these are family businesses. I'm working yeah. for my family and my in-laws. And so everyone's very understanding. And then I have teams everywhere. You know, I am not the kind of scenario where I do everything myself. I have great teams. Yeah. And, um, and that's why. Yeah. Uh, so I'm always constantly missing something somewhere. On the other hand, when you have that dual perspective, I really do think that it brings a lot of creativity and some some distance, and everyone benefits from the the exchange. Hmm, that's cool. I'd yeah. like to think that. Yeah. yeah. Well, rather than just feeling like I'm dropping the ball all the time. Well, working mom, you do always feel that way, right? You're like, my family's getting shortchanged, my work's getting shortchanged. You just have to come to accept it all and be like, I'm yeah. Well. When the kids were little, I would bring them with me here. Yeah. And um, yeah, and that was that was great actually. And then when they then when they went to school, it got harder because well, no matter what, any anybody in the wine business, the start of school is a disaster. Like your kids, they're not signed up for stuff and they're barely there in the morning and <laughs> yeah. It's because you're doing the harvest and all the things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, how do you, um, with all of that going on, how do you manage your health, you know, mental and physical health? That just seems like I'm a person where exercise is the first thing I drop when I'm busy. And yeah, uh, I think that is probably true of me as well. I mean, I think uh, when you work in wine, you end up, your whole life has seasons and there just are seasons where you have to let go of, of exercise and let go of even trying to eat well and just eat whatever's in front of you. Yeah. And, and you do it knowing that you're going to catch up again once the vines are dormant, that's your chance. Um, and so, you know, I just, I just, I, it's not realistic to expect to do it five days a week all year long. That's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I guess the way I do it is intermittently and I try to be um, gentle with myself and let myself off the hook if it's just not, not going to happen that day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the first people we interviewed almost a year ago now um, was Erin uh, Carson, who's a personal trainer. And she said that she does the same kind of cyclical lifestyle where it's like, you know, you're not always doing this. You're like building up to things and then like giving yourself a break. No, I feel very grateful that the seasons are imposed on my life because, you know, I, I have 
I visited a dairy farm not that long ago and they, it's like they have harvest all year round. Um, it's just so oh, much more nightmare. intense. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you're not, um, harvesting or in a really intense place, what do you like to do for exercise and mental sanity? Yeah, that has changed over time also. And right now, I mean, oh, so I, I just injured my knee. Um, so <laughs> I don't that has... laugh. I just know the story. So will you tell yeah. us the story? Because it's pretty fun. I mean, it's not funny, but you know what I mean? <laughs> no, the doctor's it's, it's, reaction is funny. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I started doing actually self-defense classes. So and we're going to talk about climate change and uh, and how mentally I have coped with it. But I got to this place where I decided it was hopeless and I better learn how to defend myself. And I so I was doing these kickboxing moves and jumping and pivoting and kicking. And my knee blew, my ACL just Ugh. blew, snapped in the wrong direction. And it was terrible. And the next day, I went to see my doctor and he said, but Madame says, there's an age for every sort, every sport. And I said, right. <laughs> I'm too old to be Thanks kicking. Thanks for making me feel old. Thank you. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was an important kind of uh, re- recollection or a reminder that you can't fight what's happening. You yeah. know, that's just not, that's, that's not a, a, a way to stop it or confront it. And so it was kind of a humbling moment that, Whatever's coming, it's going to ha- meet me as I am. So you are ha- you were taking self defense. So like, if someone was coming for your rationed water, you could kick the shit out of them. <laughs> I know. I don't know. I, yes. Yeah, yes. I love it. No, I love it. Well, I get. I mean, you know, climate change is something that it can feel like we have so little control over, and it totally exactly. makes sense to me that you would do something that was about like your physical power and control. Yeah, I it was just in an odd place. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe I saw a like a boxing bag in your living room. Am I wrong? Yeah. Yeah. No, that yeah. was that was it. I was actually kicking the trainer. He had this like things. I was not kicking that, but yes, yes. Amazing. <laughs> and then what about Ashtanga? Because I know that's a big part of yeah. your life. Or has been. It was. It was. It was. Yeah. 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 So I kind of yeah, I do things um, kind of fanatically, but in chapters. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I had a yoga Ashtanga chapter, which came to an end. And um, yeah, yoga, I was just obsessive and learned everything. And then all of a sudden I decided I was done. Yeah. And everything that I appreciated from it, I sort of wove into my moral fibers. But the rest I left behind, deciding that I really wanted to uncouple meditation from exercise hmm. and um, and ashtanga is kind of the most intense form of yoga or well i guess there are probably other ones in the u.s but this is the most intense form that i had accessibly in in france and i just decided that when i was exercising i would go all out and that would be exercise and then when it was time to quiet and check in with myself i would do that separately That's so i just, really yeah. interesting yeah i think ashtanga is the most intense yoga I mean, I hurt my wrist doing it and I, my wrist has never been the same again. No, exactly. You really can hurt yourself. And I'm not sure that there's any physical or spiritual reason to a lot of the kind of pretzel poses that they want to jam you into. Yeah. Um, I do remember getting, uh, I, I, you know, you remember trauma more than you remember the good times and getting up at six in the morning to do Ashtanga with you 
turning oh my God. on the TV to find out yeah. that fucking Trump had become president. I mean, yeah. like I would have yeah. never gone to France if I thought that that was going to happen. I felt like there was like a death and I was separated from my family. My husband and I were on the phone crying with each other. I mean, it was yeah. so shocking. Anyway, yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah, no, I remember. I remember vividly. It was dark. We had a candle out. Totally. You came on. To, you came on to the mat next to me. You said Trump won, and I was. <laughs> I couldn't even absorb the information. I know. <laughs> I was getting my home on and all of a sudden. Yeah. I know. I shouldn't have brought you down with me. I just was so no. like shocked that I had to like you share know. that with someone. Oh, yeah. Crazy. But at least we had that yoga practice. That helped a lot. actually. <laughs> and then I went to every producer and cried. Everyone I saw. Oh. I'm sure they were also crying. They were also very sympathetic. There's no question. <laughs> so you have spent a lot of years researching climate change. And I would love to know, I mean, we talked about the realities of trying to live with it and how overwhelming that could be. So I would love to find out really, how did you get in to it? Um, and how, you know, how do you deal with the harsh realities? And then what do you do on kind of a day-to-day basis to try to do your part? Three part yeah. questions. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, you know, I've always cared about it and been aware about it. But there was a serious shift in 2017. Um, and this is this was before the fires in, in Napa. There was a heat wave over Labor Day weekend where in the vineyards it was 120 degrees oh. every day for five days. And I just, you know, I grew up here. I had never known temperatures like that. A hot day was when it was three digits, but 120. Yeah. And it just all of a sudden hit me like a ton of bricks and changed me forever. Yeah. And it was when I realized, you know, I have this blessed life. I am so lucky. I love winemaking. I absolutely love what I do. And I get to work with this beautiful vineyards that belong to my family in Napa. And I get to work with Grand Cru uh, vineyards in, in Burgundy. And all of a sudden I realized I might be more fortunate than my own children. And I just, you know, it really, I do think came out of maternal instinct. Mm -hmm. I decided that there was just no issue, no question uh, in terms of wine quality, more important than climate change and how the industry can become powerful to stop emissions and slow climate change. So then, you know, this is my post yoga and wellness chapter. I threw myself into the research of climate change starting after the 2017 harvest. And uh, it, it has been, um, you know, quite the roller coaster. It, it was, it, there were times where I would learn something I, would, I couldn't get out of bed for a week. And then, and then I would think I'd found something that was going to be so powerful and I'd get my hopes really up. And then I'd realize that it's become so complicated because there isn't the infrastructure yet or the impact is going to be minimal. And then I'd be depressed for another two weeks. And it really, you know, it just had to be kind of absorbed little by little. And there was a point even where I just had to shut it down for six months when I realized, I mean, just, you know, my thoughts turned quite dark. Uh, I thought, well, if the most effective, efficient thing I could do is just slip my wrists, then I won't have any money. Right. And that was when I kind of observed myself and said, okay, right, we're stopping. And I put it away for about six months and I just, I kept, I took up beekeeping. <laughs> so I know, <laughs> I know 
I know, I'm two not, hives. Another deep dive. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that beekeeping necessarily makes you feel better about climate change. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, it was just another project. You know, I needed yeah. something that I felt like was impactful. And uh, I don't know. Anyway, the, the hives the hives are doing well. It's been very satisfying as a hobby. Um, and then, you know, little by little, I just was able to absorb um, the cold, hard facts and look them in the eye without crumbling. Mm. And that really came, I would say, even this last month, I finally, um, you know, faced all of the doom and said, right, you know, this is the way it is. And I'm still alive. And, uh, and there is hope. And, um, and I can live with this. You know, it's just, it's, it's like anything. It's like aging, you know, you have to little by little, just let go of things. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. We've been talking a lot lately about buying wine not from the front label, but instead buying from the back label where the importer has their logo. The best way to experiment with new wines is to find a few importers that you trust and then trying wines they import that you may never have had before. It's a very foolproof way to expand your knowledge and your palate. One of our most trusted importers is Hootenanny Wines. This is a female-owned and operated import company specializing in natural wines from Europe with incredible names like Duetere, Iuli, Arndorfer, and Vino Diana. These are boutique and well-respected producers in the wine world who are farming organically and biodynamically and making wine in the most low-intervention way possible without sacrificing taste or integrity. They are the slow fashion of wine. <laughs> Look and ask for Hootenanny at your local wine shop and be prepared to be blown away by their selections. So will you tell us about the zero emissions aspiration of wineries that you've come up with? Because I think it's really fascinating. Well, I mean, OK, so zero emissions is all of our ambition. That is, you know, that's the Paris Agreement. We all have to reach zero emissions by 2050. And we have to be at 50% by you know, 2040, 30% by 2030, which is in eight years. And ideally we'd all be reaching zero emissions as soon as possible because we, you know, so part of, they say there are three phases for climate change. First, there's the acceptance. Mm. Then there is kind of figuring out how you're going to adapt to the fact that it is going to warm up. And then the third is figuring out how you're going to reduce your emissions and make sure that you don't contribute to it further. So um, when you look at, if you look at an industry, you know, you start, you have to start breaking it down piece by piece. And, um, and so if you look at the wine industry to get to zero emissions, first of all, we're all going to have to stop using fossil fuels and there isn't that infrastructure yet. Um, in the vineyard, the actual, the big ticket is, um, is uh, nitrous oxide and not using fertilizers. But in terms of the wine business, Globally, 70% of our emissions is uh, bottle because yeah. uh, it takes so much heat to melt glass and make a bottle. And ideally, ideally, um, we would just reuse bottles like some dairy, uh, yeah, dairy businesses do. But there's just no infrastructure for that. I mean, it's possible, and yet, you know, the pickup of the bottles, the washing of the bottles, and it, it's it's so not in place and so not part of our use and throw away society. Yeah. But that is ultimately the place that we're going to have to go to, replacing fuels from fossil fuels to something else and thinking about everything cyclically. There has to be a closed loop. If whatever you use, you have to think about where it goes afterwards and what and and ideally, uh, if you like in nature, there needs to be a cycle. 
What about using, wasn't there there your idea of the released carbon dioxide in the winery to capture that? Yeah, so I read yeah. very in-depth into that. And I yeah, I wrote an article on it recent that recently came out in 750. And that that's happening. Um, so the carbon dioxide, you know, it's during fermentation, we're always you know, acutely aware of this gas because it's stinging your, your eyes and it's going up your nose and you have to be very careful to evacuate it. Every year there are people who suffocate um, because so much carbon dioxide accumulates. And so, you know, it's hard when you know that that is one of your principal greenhouse gases, you know, it's right there. And, um, and one of the, one of the necessary changes in the future is going to be what's called direct air capture, where they're going to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and um, to just to, to lower the concentration and either put it underground where it'll remineralize or turn it into biofuels. Well, we have, you know, they're, they're sucking it at 418 parts per million. We just hit that, um, that concentration, which hasn't been seen on planet earth in 3 million years, at which point there were alligators on the South pole and trees. So that's, that's the, that's the equilibrium that we're crashing back to. So they're going to suck out that concentration. And meanwhile, on the top of my tank, the uh, concentration of CO2 is almost 1 million parts per million. So, you know, there's a lot of energy that is wasted concentrating uh, CO2 from 400 to a million, but here I have it all concentrated. So there are, there are a lot of people who are looking into how we can take advantage of that. And some, some companies are already starting it, but uh, it's, it's still very new technology and, and not, not easy. It requires engineering and it requires, uh, there, depending on what method you, you use, it's not necessarily uh, green if you look at the whole picture. You know, the one thing that I studied a lot is trapping it with bicarbonates. And unfortunately, those are minerals that are mined for a mountain, trucked to your winery. And so um, unless, you know, that that bicarbonate can go to an industry where they peel off the CO2 and return the carbonate to you, unless that that cycle is created, it's really not, it's not um, sustainable. And for the moment, you're just making bicarbonate and, and mining carbonate. And that's going to create a problem one day. So until you, there's, they bring it back to you next year, it's, it's not, not truly a closed system. Interesting. Yeah. So that was, you know, just, just that little, you know, finding a company that actually was already doing carbon capture, my, my hopes got all high, yeah. discovering that the concentration of CO2 or the amount of CO2 that Domaine Dujac, for example, could capture is about eight tons a year. But meanwhile, my flight from Paris to San Francisco and back itself is four tons of CO2. So I just all of a sudden I thought, okay, all of this material and work to capture eight tons of CO2 when I could just stop flying. (laughs) (laughs) And that was all that. And that was, that was around the time when I said, maybe I could just slip my wrists. (laughs) Well, what are you going to row across the ocean? I mean, how are you going to get there? Sorry, <laughs> I said, are you going to row across the ocean as an alternative? I mean, I just, no, I just realized that it's yeah. just, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it feels futile. Hard. Yeah. Yeah. It feels futile when, yeah. So where are you setting your sights now in terms of what individual wineries around the world can do? Um, well, so, uh, I think every winery is going to pick and choose from what is easiest, for it within its ecosystem. So, uh, you know, 
um, Dimenditrian, we have um, we have solar panels all over our buildings. It's southern France, so that makes sense. Uh, we have removed some a lot of vines and planted a thousand trees in the last in the last year. And um, meanwhile, at Domaine Dujac, and they and all, Trian is using very very light bottles. It's about three hundred grams. At Domaine Dujac, we have this plumbing for CO two. And it is going to, I think it's most useful just because when people come to visit us, it's an opportunity to talk about it. It's not about the eight tons of CO2, um, but it's, it's, it's uh, an example of what is possible. And we are building a winery, uh, which is made, uh, it's insulated with Burgundian hay and it's built out of oak. <laughs> and we were, we had to have cement because you won't get a building permit without cement, cement foundations. Mm-hmm. Cement is of course, very CO2 intensive. And, um, you know, so, so then at Snowden, I guess the biggest thing that my family did is we have 170 acres, only 23 are planted. We could have torn out all of the forest and planted all of the property, but we never wanted to do that. And, um, and we right now are kind of grappling with the trade-off. I mean, we could potentially sell our, our carbon credits because um, that now has a value. And, but at the same time, if we sell our carbon credits, then that means that some other company is making itself look greener than it, than it is and uh, is offsetting something, some polluting industry that they're doing. And, and it's kind of better to keep our forest absorbing CO2 and, and keep that, even though it's, it's a cost to us, uh, keep it as a negative emission, a net negative emission. Hmm. So, yeah. So what you're going to do is going to, it's going to depend on what is easiest for you. I think everyone, every company, every family, every person should start with what feels doable. And are there other um, growers or winemakers in Napa or Provence or in Burgundy who are like excited about this and kind of joining, joining your team? There are a lot of, yeah, there are a lot of groups out there. Uh, I belong to Porto Protocol, which has essentially in order to join, you share a case study. And so if you go to the website, there are hundreds of case studies uh, everywhere from green roofs to how someone has um, reduced their water consumption using some special, special gadget or recycling water. I mean, there's just a huge number of interesting case studies and that they're just sharing best, best practices. So it, it gives tools for people to pick and choose and see what they want to tackle next. I wonder in terms of the bottles, because I do think about waste in our business so much. I mean, even just sampling wine as I do during the week, Mm -hmm. I use half a bottle, maybe three-fourths of a bottle. That alone, I just am like, can we get half bottles for samples? I don't know. But when I used to live in Venice, Italy, we would go to the local wine place. They have like a big jar, a, a glass jar of wine and we would bring our empty bottle and have them fill it up. I mean, we weren't picky, obviously, (laughs) but I just wonder if it's, if it's not something we can do on a global level, like, could we start with that on a local level? I mean, it, it would be hard for us in Colorado because we don't really have Mm -hmm. like Dujac down the street kind of thing. (laughs) But in, Bur- <laughs> in Burgundy, in Napa, I don't know. I'm just thinking of like li- those, because if we all try to create something major 
it may never happen. It's overwhelming. And so all these little ways that are, are as a community, we can start to chip away. You know what I mean? I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, the co community-based programs are the ones that are going to be the answer. And yeah, they are going to vary from region to region. And what, you know, something that is possible if we were, you know, going to reimagine a world that has zero emissions with wine in it would be shipping in these uh, 10 hectoliter tanks and bottling, yes. yeah, in the area. And that is completely possible. Um, and happening a little bit. Sweden does a lot. Sweden's kind of practically insisting on it. Um, and it's just a matter of creating the, the ethos and the, and the habit and the infrastructure. There but were yeah. some producers during tariffs that were shipping wine over in bladders mm -hmm. and bottling them on Long Island. Mm -hmm. And it was really to avoid the, the tariff. But I mean, environmentally, it also made sense. So, but I mean, are we going to go to Tetra Packs for like okay. high end Burgundy? I mean, it's so tricky, but there's a lot of wine consumed that's not high end Burgundy where maybe we need to rethink a heavy glass bottle, you know, yeah. in, in cardboard box all of that. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, there are many solutions. The problem is, is, I mean, I, I agree that alternate packaging needs to uh, be there. There needs to be more people doing that because so much of the wine is consumed immediately and doesn't actually need to age for 20 years. But as soon as you put your wine in a cardboard bottle or whatever, a Tetra pack, uh, it doesn't, it, you put a price ceiling on your wine. And sure. so it's a problem of perception. And so it's going to have to come from consumers before I think producers are going to want to take that risk, unfortunately. We we poured um, several of the of Michael Schmelzer's Four Estrada wines out of Tetra Pak at PMG for our happy hour wines. Nice. And like and it, we did it specifically to have this conversation with consumers and 75% of the people we would pour it for would look at us and say, no, 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 I don't want box wine. And I was like, <laughs> you know, this yeah. isn't, it's not box wine. <laughs> well, when they start to have water rations, they'll rethink. Yeah. I mean, you know, right. I so hate that, to say it, but these are going to be the things that we're going to have to deal with. I mean, the other half of the continental divide in Colorado right now is having water rations. We were lucky to have a lot of rain this year, but it's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's going to be a big shift because people are really getting confronted in a very real way with the, the climate crisis. And uh, I think more, it's going to get easier and easier, but I think once you draw the connection between CO2 emissions and whatever habit that they could change really quite easily, um, that there'll, it'll, it'll change dramatically. I hope in the next 10 years. Um, when you think about shipping more in bulk and doing local bottling or packaging, do you as a winemaker feel concerned about quality control? Um, you would have to have, yeah, you would have to, it would be a learning experience, I'm sure. You'd have to ship cold, so that is some energy, and then you'd have to be sure that it's being bottled under inert gas. But if both of those things were true, I think... I think you would be, yeah, I would be comfortable certainly with Cabernet shipping it to, you know, say Sweden and having it bottled there. Yeah. Cool. Um, it's, go ahead. Well, so one of the other questions I have, because I keep coming back in my head to this, like, it's so easy to get stuck in the yeah. doom of this situation and feel really powerless. So I really like, it makes me feel really optimistic. Actually, I'm kind of 
surprising myself um, about <laughs> winemakers having these different opportunities and thinking about the regionality of the options, but what can consumers do? Because I think that there's so much like marketing and greenwashing right now that it's really hard to feel confident in the information that we as consumers have. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So you're thinking specifically related to wine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think- Or even yeah. at home. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. like you're not using okay. plastic wrap at home. I noticed you had like plates on top of plates in your fridge and stuff. That's awesome yeah. though. Like, why not? Why am I using saran wrap? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think all of that is a learning process for sure. And don't try to do everything at once because that is the the making of a mental breakdown, but gently moving, you know, we all know this stuff, you know, turn off your lights and walk if you can bike if you can. And zero waste is a really, I mean, practically, I think it feels like a religion. You have to explain to people at Christmas that I'm sorry, I don't want anything that's going to become landfill. Um, (laughs) But every, you think about everything you buy and you wonder where it's come from and where it's going to go afterwards. So you get into that cyclical mentality. And, um, and you know, there's really so much stuff that we could actually do without. And if we realize that, you know, these gifts we give at Christmas, they're not gifts. It's pollution and landfill and emissions. And uh, our children are just going to have a world, world clogged with this stuff uh, and for what? Just to have, you know, a package to open under the tree. It's, it's, you know, it's a fundamental reshaping of the way you examine the world, that your values and the way you spend your time and money. And it's um, ultimately digestible. Just, you know, it's just, it just takes some time to, to stop thinking the way we used to and then see it from a new perspective. Yeah. 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 That's why I only, <laughs> I only give people consumable gifts. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's but I you know, I, I was talking about this yesterday. Like you go into Whole Foods and all the berries are in plastic. Everything's in plastic. Everything. I mean, except for maybe the eggs and some of the milk. And that's Whole Foods. So it's like how are I mean, it really I feel like there are very easy ways that we can all start and um, you know, even I, I, like this, like a reusable water bottle. It is so Colorado. Like I can tell a flight going to Denver in any airport because everyone has one of these water bottles and everywhere else I go, people are buying plastic water bottles still. And I'm shocked because it's so not in our lexicon anymore here, but that's such a small little way that I think people can make a change. And like, but when I'm in New York city and I'm walking all day, I don't want to carry this thing. So like, I get it. I get how it it becomes convenience ultimately. I'm driving around. I have my bottle in the car. Who cares? You know. So yeah. um, I think just I feel like the message is any little way that we can all just choose. Like, do you choose five things or whatever mm-hmm. that maybe you're going to change? Like, use fewer paper towels. I feel like once I had kids, I started using paper towels like a motherfucker. Like it was just bananas, you know, (laughs) and just buy washable washcloths to have in the kitchen to wipe down the counters and just little things like that, you know? And everything is its own study. So paper towels, you're right. Paper towels, it would be better to use um, washable towels. However, if you use paper towels, those can be composted. It's not as bad as plastic. True. 
Yeah, but so then that's a whole thing. And I have, you know, a few different compost things going on at home and not everybody has room for that. But actually, there are composters that even fit in apartments um, once you decide to go down the composting rabbit hole. <laughs> so it is possible. But the thing is, is, it all takes more time. As you say, it's less convenient. It's usually more expensive. And, but I think the onus of all of doing all of this is on anybody who earns $30,000 or more a year, because we are disproportionately responsible for the carbon emissions. And we are going to be more sheltered from, from the, the eventual climate crisis than people who earn less than that. So it's, 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 you know, it's just, it's a choice, it's choices. It's uh, choosing to face how dire the situation is and choosing to do something about it because de denial, I really think that the big climate change problem is our human natural coping uh, mechanism of denial. And, uh, and undoing that is a painful process. It is your, every cell in your body is going to fight it. Um, when you, you know, change is not something that we like either. And, um, seeing something that is uncomfortable, it takes willpower. I would say that my biggest hurdles are not so much denial as like apathy and overwhelm. <laughs> They're kind of the same thing. They're so <laughs> like it's, They're it's yeah, it's hard, yeah. you know, it's hard to like, yeah, I, there is definitely overlap in those things, but it's, it's hard to you know, decide to take something on that feels insurmountable. Yeah, I think they're all shades of the same thing. And, um, and I get it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, she was in bed for me. Well, so how did you, <laughs> so, how did you yeah. get through that feeling? You know, how did you um, come back you into know, feeling hopeful? I, I, you know, I really can't say exactly, except that I just, I just lived with it, you know, I just lived with it and breathed through it and um, realized that it is hopeless. You know, I, I think that I had been trying so hard and burning myself out. And then I, you know, just all of a sudden realizing that no matter what I do, it's hopeless. <laughs> but you do it anyway. So I'm, I'm on and the right path. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how, somehow that just broke and uh, all of a sudden, the air rushed back in, and um, and I felt okay with it. You know, I think I have been connecting with so many people, and that's been really great. Neat. For every you know podcast I do or panel I do, uh, I have twenty five people who want to learn more who get in touch with me, and I'll have one person who's a proper expert in the, their field who wants to get in touch with me and teach me something. And um, all of that feels good. You know, community again, feels, feels like you can do something. And then, and then these kids, you know, this next generation, yeah. they get it. They really get it. And, you know, I explained to my kids this year, it's going to be a zero waste Christmas and they were fine with it. Like, okay, they didn't care. And um, I just, I, I think that uh, change is going to come a lot faster as the old mentality <laughs> has less power and the kids uh, have more. I cannot wait for this discussion with my mother who <laughs> loves nothing more than the sparkly tree with all the gifts under it. Like it's her, but it's an important <laughs> discussion to have. I mean, what's the fucking point of all those, that wrapping? I mean, seriously, that's just such a simple, simple thing. If you're not going to afford go to the gifts, just don't wrap them. You know, I, I now yeah. wrap all of my gifts in like 
paper bags that I have from other things, you know. Oh, that's cool. Reuse. <laughs> yeah. Reuse, reuse, I just I just write on them with a Sharpie. Nice. <laughs> it's really fancy. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, man. That's great. And that, it becomes a game, actually. Yeah. It becomes kind of a challenge. Like, being able to give Christmas gifts that aren't polluting is kind of fun to, you know, figure that out. Huh. Yeah. Or money. Money yeah. works. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but then if they're well, going to yeah. go buy something with it, then it defeats the whole purpose. Yeah. Right. Money is yeah. interesting. Uh, you know, that's actually low hanging fruit. When you uh, think about like what you can do, breaking up with your big bank is actually very powerful. And because, you know, you, you can find out there which ones are the most heavily invested in fossil fuels. Chase interesting. Oh. Yeah. And, and by virtue of yeah, letting them use your money, then you're funding fossil fuels. So you can find out which is in most invested in green energy and uh, take your business there. Interesting. So everything, everything uh, can be researched, understood and optimized. <laughs> Meanwhile, everyone's into Bitcoin right now, which is like, oh my God. right. I know. Yeah. Like, why are we going there right now? I don't get it. But anyway, that's, that's going to happen. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Bitcoin, of course, is using a lot of electricity to be churning constantly. But I do think that that is kind of an important reminder that money only has value because we all agree it has value. Yeah, true. And as we are reminded of the immutable law of physics, you know, um, that that this, you know, matter can neither, neither be created nor destroyed. As we accumulate CO2 in the atmosphere, we're going to make parts of the planet uninhabitable. All of our human institutions are going to start crumbling. Hmm. And um, so that's that's kind of the trade-off. When you're figure, thinking, oh, this is so inconvenient, I really can't afford it. Well, your fictitious money tickets aren't going to be, do you any good <laughs> quite soon. Very true. Very yeah. true. Oh, Man. it's a lot to digest. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, but really important. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you no. for taking us on no. this journey. And I think meditation is a good prescription here. You know yes, what I mean? Let's come back to that. <laughs> yeah. Just like sit with it, breathe through it. Meditation and community. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think I think really the answer is going to be in the collective. Yeah. Uh, and every, all of, you know, a lot of the, car the carbon capture stuff that I've been talking about, it only works if we all do it. All of the machinery is so costly that we need to share it. And so that, that is kind of a change of mentality. And, and uh, once people do change their mentality, the infrastructure will come. Yeah. That's great. Well, I'm really excited about this and also depressed. Um, to, <laughs> to finish up, um, we always like to end with something really positive. And I know you've spoken a lot about optimism already, but what's something that you are excited for? Um, well, yeah, I, I, I can you about some concrete um, stories that of you know people who have gotten in touch with me and yesterday I was talking to someone in the Napa Valley who's trying to convince the Napa Valley to use a new kind of fission called molten salt fission to generate green electricity and it was just mind-blowing because we have nuclear energy in France but it makes a bunch of enriched uranium so there's no CO2 but on the other hand you have all this nuclear waste well he has a new kind it's not just him there are two there are two companies that he's now looking into uh, convincing the Napa Valley to invest in one uh, that will generate nuclear energy with no uranium uh, radioactive uranium. So that was, you know, that was exciting. It was, it was 
exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just, you know, we have all the tools. It's okay. just a matter of, yeah, of really digging in. And um, so, so that is, you know, I think that is what's uplifting, constantly learning, constantly connecting. That's what gives me energy and hope. Yeah. Good. Wonderful. I mean, I feel yeah. like we get a lot of that by doing this podcast. Yeah, you know? that's true. That's definitely my favorite part. And lots of good <laughs> tips, too. Uh, well, we will let you get back to your crazy harvest schedule. I know you're in Cali right now. Then you're going back to Burgundy to do harvest. So God bless. Yeah, yeah it's a lot. <laughs> thank you so much, Diana. It was great, was great to see you. And thank you for sharing all your wisdom and knowledge. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, To everyone who listened, thank you so much for tuning in. Please do head to our podcast website, finelinepodcast.com, where you can find all of our episodes and support the podcast. Thanks. Kathy Hoya from A Balanced Glass, an online and in-person community of wine and spirits professionals who are dedicated to wellness when alcohol is at the center of our work. I'm grateful to Liz and Emily for inviting us to add a few moments of reflection to the Fine Line podcast. This week, inspired by the conversation with Diana, I can't help but linger over two of the most compelling strategies within our practice, meditation and community. Those are the two ways that Diana and Emily and Liz and myself for that matter, manage the overwhelm. Meditation and community, how to manage the overwhelm. The overwhelm of climate change was the context that gave rise to that observation in this week's podcast, though clearly the phenomenon of overwhelm has many faces, many big, unwieldy, impossible to get our arms around faces, like the global pandemic and the economic fallout from it that impacts some people far more negatively than others, and the ongoing struggles for equity in terms of race and gender and class. These circumstances and situations are overwhelming indeed. They make us want to pull up the covers and hide. They exasperate us. In Diana's case, as we heard earlier, they make us want to slit our wrists. They are so massively problematic that it's easy to understand the response of throwing up our hands and asking, what can we do? What can we do? What we can do is meditate and stay in community. Meditation and community. They are in some ways two sides of the same coin that is the currency for managing the overwhelm. Two sides of the same coin. On one side is meditation and self-inquiry and looking inward to explore our physical and emotional responses to the conditions around us. On the other side is taking that mindfulness and the perspective from looking inward and letting it serve as helpful bridges to the people around us, to our community. On one side, through meditation, we see that we are individually unique and that our experiences are specific to each of us. On the other side, through community, we see that although our experience is unique, we are not alone. We are unique and we are together. We dance between the two. That is how we manage the overwhelm. How is it going for you? How can you tune into what your body is telling you? Maybe can you sit in meditation for just a few more minutes today? 
Can you let it open some windows and blow in some fresh air of perspective, of recognition that, yes, we are in a global state of overwhelm, and we are not in it alone? That dance, that dynamic between meditation and community is my wish for you today. Thank you for listening. This has been Kathy Hoya for A Balanced Glass.